following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, so we're, we're continuing this week in our Advent series. It's called Hark. We've been tracing the angelic announcements around the birth of Christ, uh, kind of as our roadmap for the Advent season uh, this year. And today uh, we're going to read about an angel visiting Joseph. This is the man who adopted Jesus uh, and raised him as his own. So we're in Matthew 1, as I said. I'm not there yet, but uh, we're going to be verses 18 through 25. Got bookmarks falling out of this thing. Try to clean it out every once in a while, but that one snuck up on me. All right, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together... She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Praise God for his word. Amen. So as has kind of been the pattern, maybe more distinctly, it's kind of always the pattern, but more distinctly throughout this series, we're going we're gonna to work through the text. I want to make sure we understand what's happening in the text, and then we'll work on uh, some applications. So if we come back to verse 18, we'll see this idea that, uh, that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. And so today, uh, we have most commonly, at least here in this country, a two-step process, okay? It's engagement and then marriage, Okay. In Israel at that time, it was most common for that to be a three-step process. And so not knowing that or being aware of how that worked could make this a little bit confusing. And so the way it would work is, first of all, you would be engaged. This was a step before this betrothal that's mentioned here. The engagement oftentimes was, it was arranged by the families, okay? Um, and, you know, you can like that or not like that or whatever. I'm just telling you how it was, okay? So these engagements were arranged by families, largely, And then there would be a point where they came of age in order to actually act on that. They would become betrothed. That was the next step. And so this made the engagement official, so to speak. It normally lasted for about a year. And it was binding to the degree that a legal divorce was needed to break it. Okay, So during that betrothal period of about a year, they would live apart. And they would remain celibate during that time. After that time of betrothal, there'd be a wedding, and uh, then they would live together, and uh, you know they would really get to know each other in the biblical sense, if you know what I'm saying. So they would take that step. Uh, Mary and Joseph were in this betrothal period, which, when this is being 
recorded here. And that's why you may find it weird that Joseph is referred to as her husband in the next verse, right? But that her pregnancy would have been a scandal. That's, that's kind of how that looked, okay? So for them, this betrothal, they, really, they were husband and wife in a legal sense, but they, they weren't to the point where they're married and then enjoying the benefits of that, okay? Amen. Verse 19. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So here's something you may not know. Uh, Jewish law allowed for Mary to be stoned for this offense. Okay? So if this wasn't an immaculate conception, and this was what everyone probably assumed it was, there was grounds for her to be killed for that. Uh, but we see some of the character of Joseph in this verse that shows why he was a solid candidate to help raise Jesus. Instead of, of leaning into the temptation for vengeance as a result of the scorn and embarrassment that this surely would cause him, right? Your fiance is pregnant, okay? That, you can go two ways with that. And, and thankfully, Joseph went the way he did. Instead of kind of being vengeful and, and wanting justice to come down on her hard, his thoughts were towards Mary's well-being. And this is even though, as far as he knew she had broken her vow to him, right? Because the angel hadn't shown up yet and confirmed. We don't even know yet if Mary had said to Joseph what the Lord had said to her about. We have no indication. But in any case, you know, at this point, either she hasn't said anything and he's left to his imagination or she has said something. And obviously the, the, the verses let us know he's still, when the, when the angel shows up in the dream, he's still considering these things, okay? And I mean, can you blame him, right? It's kind of a wild story. Uh, yeah, you know, Gabriel, the angel from back in the Old Testament, he showed up and said, this is God's baby, right? <laughs> you know, but even, here the, here's the thing, even if he didn't think it was true, even if, even if he believed the worst about it, there, there was still mercy here, and there was still something of the character of Joseph, I would say big time revealed in the way he was not going to, shall we say, throw the, throw the book at Mary, Okay. Uh, verses 20 and 21, but when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph surely thought that his world had been turned upside down by just the news of Mary's pregnancy but he hadn't seen or heard anything yet, okay? That, that was, a, that was a, a world-crushing piece of news, even without this idea that now what God's asking him is to do is not just put her away quietly and try to move on with his life, but to move into this thing. Take Mary as your wife and get involved here, right? Put your name into this situation. Big stuff. When, when the angel something we might miss. When the angel comes here and, and, and addresses Joseph, he says, Joseph, son of David. This son of David distinction, it would have been an attention grabber, uh, first of all. It, part of what it, at least part of what it was intended to do was to remind Joseph of his connection to the story and the legacy of God's people. That's his people. And to alert him to the reality that the effects of his actions here, okay, it would have a ripple effect beyond his own immediate situation. 
The angel doesn't just show up and say, hey, Joseph. He says, hey, Joseph, son of David. Okay? Instantly, that's reaching back. That's calling to attention the story as it's unfolded, right? The faithfulness of God throughout time, the promises to David, and the fact that there's more on the line here, brother, than you're aware of. Listen up, son of David. I got something big to tell you. This baby belongs to God. Now, so not, not only is, is he given that piece, like, hold up, hark, right? This son of David, this is, this is the equivalent of, hold on, listen up. We got big news here. But, but it, all in the same sentence, basically, he, he gets this bomb dropped on him that his fiance is pregnant with God's baby. You, I'm just trying to, I'm trying to help us appreciate the situation. Some, sometimes we've heard these stories and, and things around Advent and in the incarnation so many times like, oh yeah, yeah, Joseph had a dream and da 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 No man, this, <laughs> this is world shattering stuff here. This is a big deal. I'm, and I think it's, it's helpful for us to try to emotionally connect with how wild this was for Joseph and the situation that he was being put in. If, look, this, this is wild enough in the, con- in the cultural context they find themselves for Mary to be pregnant and then in the midst of a cultural context of a people waiting for a Messiah that God has been promising for hundreds of years to then hear this idea that this baby that I'm asking you to marry this woman and take care of is that Messiah. I mean, on so many different levels, but at, at the cultural level, this would have been so scandalous. This would have been so wild. This, them being betrothed and, and Mary popping up and, and starting to show a little bit. It, look, here's what I'm trying to say. If, if Maury Povich and Dr. Phil were alive then, they would have fist fought to get Mary and Joseph on their show, right? The little, the little bottom third thing, on the, on, on, it would have been, okay, here's Joseph, the fiance, and Mary, who claims to be having God's baby. It would it'd be right there written on the bottom of the thing. You understand what I'm saying? This is, this is wild, man. And Jerry Springer would have wanted it too, right? Amen. It would have been a three-way fight between those jokers. This is nuts, man, okay? We're kind of desensitized to it because we've heard the Christmas story a bunch of times. This is off the chain, okay? Now, you got that? All right, let's, now I can move on. Now I think you get it. Verses 22 and 23. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now, many think that Matthew wrote this gospel first in Hebrew. Uh, that's debated, but a lot of folks think that. But here's what's not debatable. The Jews were definitely an intended audience for Matthew's gospel account, okay? Because what we notice Matthew doing is often taking time to tie the events that he's recording to Old Testament prophecy that foretold that they would happen. Matthew oftentimes pauses and says, this happened to show the fulfillment of this, and then quotes the Old Testament prophet, okay? This, and this is one of the first cases we have of that, Matthew doing that, okay? So what do, what do we see? We see this quotation of Isaiah 7.14, which says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will name him Emmanuel. All right? So Matthew's saying... 700 years-ish ago, Isaiah said this was going to happen. That's worth considering. Amen? (laughs) Explain that without 
an all-powerful God. Well, maybe it's coincidence. Well, there's too many of those for that to be reasonable at some point, right? Like where he was born and the fact he was born of a virgin, that's pretty hard coincidence to come up with. You're not seeing that happen too many times. Amen, right? So now let me, let me just say this, because I don't know what you guys get exposed to, what you read, what uh, you know, History Channel documentaries you might watch, but there is some debate about this verse that I just quoted you, Isaiah 7.14, about wh- whether it's really pointing prophetically to the birth of Jesus, okay? And most of the debate on that, it hinges on this. It's the fact that the Hebrew word for virgin in Isaiah 7.14, it can also mean young girl. And so there's some that say, look, man, you Christians, you just want Old Testament prophecy to be verified by Jesus because you like Jesus and you want him to be the Messiah, but, you know, some people saying stuff like this might not think there's a Messiah at all. They might not think Jesus was him, whatever it is. And I just want to give you a few reasons why I think we shouldn't be that concerned about the fact that uh, this Hebrew word for, used for virgin here in Isaiah 7.14 can also mean young girl, okay? And there's more to be considered, but I'm just, I'm just going to touch it here because, I, you know, who knows? Maybe you'll be exposed to this, and I want you to at least be able to have your footing. All right, so... Here's one thing to consider. Matthew was one of the 12 disciples who spent three years with Jesus, okay? So that's cred. He thought that Isaiah 7 was referring to him. That's indisputable. What Matthew for sure here is quoting Isaiah 7:14, right? It's not like, oh, a baby might be born. No, a baby's gonna be born and we're gonna call him Emmanuel, God with us, okay? That's, you're only doing that once, Okay. Also, Emmanuel, meaning God with us, it puts this outside the realm of your normal run-of-the-mill conception, all right? That's just not something you you say about any old baby, right? That it's God with us. Uh, Just one, actually. That's Jesus. Um, You you also, you don't see this Hebrew word Alma being used other than in the context of a virgin in the Hebrew scriptures. So yes, maybe in other places uh, where, where Hebrew was written and or spoken, Uh, yes, maybe that word would have been used as young girl, but we're looking in just the context of the Hebrew scriptures, it's it's pointing to a virgin whenever it's used, okay? So that is significant. Um, And and here's the thing. Here's here's what I want you to know. Not not always. I'm not not totally broad brush painting this thing here. I want you to know that. But a lot of times you will see this argument about, well, it could be young girl. Does it, so is that really pointing to Jesus? Is that really as cool as it seems to look? You, you'll, see it, you'll see that argument made by those who struggle with the idea of a virgin birth. Okay? Because look, it's kind of a weird idea. Okay? We can admit that, right? Yes. And it's hard to explain. Yes. But those realities make it hard for some people to believe it, okay? And I get that. I, I, I have compassion on that. But here's for, you know, I'm, I'm talking to us who, who claim to believe. That's, that's where really my tone's at right now. If somebody's not a believer, somebody's not convinced of any of the truth of God's word yet, then we're going we're gonna to deal with that totally different than somebody's like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I don't know about the virgin birth. Is it that important? That's kind of hard to believe. I'm like, hmm, What? Here's the thing, friends. Here's, here's the thing. If we're going to be sheepish or squeamish about saying we believe in the virgin birth of Jesus, all right, there's a lot more that the Bible teaches we're going to need to be ashamed of as well. Okay? And, and I, for one, am not ashamed, man, and I hope you aren't either, because I believe a lot of wild things. Amen. 
I believe a lot of wild things. I, I believe, for one, that God made everything out of nothing. Just, just let that hit you for a second. I believe that, man. I believe Abraham and Sarah had Isaac in their old age. I believe the Red Sea parted in half and the people of God crossed on dry land. I believe that. I believe a rock at Horeb was split and water flowed in the desert where there was none. I believe that. That's real. I believe the walls of Jericho fell because some people obeyed God, marched around it a bunch of times, and blew some horns. Because the Bible tells me that happened. I believe it. I believe that fire came down from heaven on Mount Carmel when Elijah called for it. And it burned up the sacrifice soaked with water. I believe that. I believe Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. I believe he walked on water and he healed lepers. I believe he made the deaf hear and the blind see and the lame walk. I believe he cast out demons. And after the Romans crucified him and he was buried, I believe three days later he rose from the dead. Amen. Here's the thing, man. I believe in a God who created the laws of nature, physics, and thermodynamics, and I believe he can bend them or daggone break them whenever he decides to. So yeah, I do believe in a virgin birth, man. And I'm not ashamed of it. Amen. How, if you, just, just the first thing, if you believe in a God that created everything out of nothing, what are we struggling with a virgin birth for? Man. I also, in, by the way, amen. Somebody else gets it up in this church. Thank you, sister. I also believe, by the way, in the miracle of miracles where God takes those dead in their sins and makes them alive by grace through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I believe that one sits on top of the pile of all the rest I talked about. It is the miracle of miracles. And I'm not ashamed of his gospel either because it is the power of God unto salvation. And so I hope, dear friends, whether it's History Channel or someone you're talking to or whatever, you're not going to be made to feel stupid that we're trusting in the fact that Mary was a virgin, that the Holy Spirit of God overshadowed her, and that Emmanuel, God with us, <laughs> came in the form of Jesus Christ. Amen. Verses 24 and 25. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I just want to quickly point out here, can we look at this no hesitation obedience? Joseph's considering these things as he falls asleep, that he's got a fiance that's pregnant and either is telling him it's God's baby or hasn't told him anything yet and he's trying to figure out what to do. Goes to sleep, an angel pops up in his dream, says, hey man, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. God's doing this. And then, and then what is, and Joseph awoke from his sleep and argued with God about what was to be done here. No, man. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. Hmm. Dear God, grant us this kind of boldness and obedience. Grant it to me. Hallelujah. I mean, forget what the naysayers might cackle from their corners. Forget what it might mean for our reputation, man. May we move 
in this kind of humble obedience, regardless, regardless of what lies fear may try to whisper in our ears. That, look, I'm just going to tell you, I want to live like that. You can do whatever you want, but I'm praying that you're going to want to live like that as your pastor. <laughs> that, everything about that sounds right to me. Amen. Now, I've told you throughout this sermon series, we're following kind of one traditional model this year. It sees each of the weeks of Advent as, as representing some element of the goodness that we received through Christ's coming and the promise that he's coming again. And so those, those four kind of distinctions is hope, peace, joy, and love. And so if you're keeping track and good at counting, you know we're on joy, okay? Because we've done hope and peace. You guys look more confused when I said that. Is it the counting that's hard or the keeping track that's hard? Everyone's like, I should have known it was joy? Yeah. Yes, <laughs> there's four and we're on the third and I just told you what they were. Okay, amen, hallelujah, we're getting it. Joy would be typically the third week in this model. There's different Advent models. There's, you know, whatever, lots of traditions. But as I was working through these angelic announcement texts, I, on the back side of it, the Lord just kind of was showing me that these, this coincided in a, in a cool way. So, you know, we've almost got two sets of guideposts to make our way through this Advent celebration this year. But um, <clears throat> I see a few ways that we get to we get a glimpse of the potential for real joy as a result of our king's arrival, and particularly here Joseph's involvement in that. A look at real joy. And what I mean by that is, is real abiding joy, not temporary happiness or elation. Um, I, I had more to say about that, but honestly, that song we sung at the beginning basically preached a quarter of the sermon for me, so I'm just going to take a break and we'll move on, because that was awesome, man. We're not talking about temporary happiness here. We're not talking about feelings of elation, man. We're talking about something that is more concrete and is sourced from the very character and promises of God himself, right? And so just here's, here's, here's part of, you may not feel like you have the joy of the Lord right now. And let me, let me just compassionately say this. I know that this time of year is hard for some folks. Sometimes there's family dynamics. Sometimes there's trauma. There's things that can be around this season from a memory perspective or, or from the, the reality of what right now looks like that can be very, very hard. And so I don't want you to feel like when we're talking about unshakable, immovable joy, please don't take that as us trivializing whatever pain you might be passing through at the moment. Because what we're trying to say is you, you can feel sad and have the joy of the Lord at the same time. Okay, I want you to know that that's possible. But that also helps those that think, or, or like, well, I just don't feel like I have the joy of the Lord. Well, well, you're using the wrong barometer to even understand. The feeling has nothing to do with it, man. The joy of the Lord is something abiding that you have as a result of what Christ has done and who he is and who you now are in him. So whether you feel like you have the joy of the Lord is not the issue. If you belong to him, it's yours. The question is really, are you being convinced of lies to the opposite? That's really the only way that you get out of the joy of the Lord, okay? If, if you're his, you got it, okay? Amen. I hope that's good news to you. You might have thought, oh, I lost it, or I can't find it. No, nope. <laughs> no, nope. maybe we just need more help understanding what it really looks like. It's not temporary happiness or elation. Um, the joy of the Lord, man, it's strength to us. It's a real 
thing that God gives. It's tangible, okay? And, and how do I see opportunities for us to understand the joy of the Lord better through this account of Joseph and this angelic announcement? Well, the first thing I want to point out to you is, uh, and it may seem counterintuitive at first, but how many, I mean, we should be used to that by now. If we're Christians reading the Bible, we should be used to counterintuitive, amen? <laughs> the kingdom of God is inside out and upside down in just about every way. But I want to first just point out that there's joy in sacrifice. There's joy in sacrifice. What? Well, let me read this to you. First of all, let's establish the principle. Acts 20, verse 35, Paul is saying farewell to the Ephesian elders, okay? And he quotes Jesus here. Let me read this to you. He says, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, most of you have heard that sentence. It's more blessed to give than to receive. Most of us probably at least know we should agree with it. Right? We're supposed to, and I want to, but if we're being really honest with ourselves, sometimes the dots don't all connect for how that is actually true. Experientially, it can be hard to understand how it's better to give than receive, how it's better to sacrifice for the good of others than to be selfish and do what makes me feel good in the moment, right? But I want to start with this premise. The Lord Jesus said it. And so right off the bat, whether I get it or not, I'm going to put that in the that's true bucket. And if I don't understand it, then I'm the problem, not him. Amen. That's good. Okay. It is better to give than receive. Now, some of us have experienced that to varying degrees. Sometimes we have actually walked in obedience to the reality that living a self-sacrificial life out of the model of the love of God, we've actually been able to experience, we've tasted and seen man Pouring myself out for the good of others, that, that, I, can, I can attest to the fact that not only is that better at some deep spiritual level where Jesus said it is, but even all the way up here at the level of how it makes me feel. It's actually better to be loving and caring and pour myself out for others than it is to be selfish and stingy and, and look out for number one. Wow, Jesus, you were right. Right? Amen. But, it, you know, it, we also could get caught up in kind of this, this unfortunate legalistic paradigm thing that happens. And it's like, okay, well, I don't know if I really believe it, but Jesus said it, so I'm going to try to do it. And, and it, it could feel like, oh, man, it's just another thing that is really hard that God asked us to do. But can we just remember, friends, that <laughs> in all things, Jesus... Jesus came and had a human experience. That's part of what we're celebrating in Christmas. And so he's experienced what we've experienced. He's gone through what we've gone through. But even, even more than that, when it, when it comes to the whole finding joy in sacrifice deal, Jesus went first and went biggest, and we're never going to catch him, okay? Can I read this to you? Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore... Since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let's run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking only at Jesus, the originator and perfecter. Some translations, you'll, you may know this verse to say the author and perfecter of our faith. Might ring a bell for you there. Here's the key. Here's why I came here. 
who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here's, here's the deal. What we're, saying, what we're seeing said here is, for the joy set before Him endured the cross. It was for the joy set before Him that Jesus went and endured that most heinous of, of torture and the excruciating reality of, ha- of being separated from God the Father through that process temporarily, which would have been by far the worst part for him. Why did he do that? <laughs> he did that for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. What is the joy set before him? What does that mean? Well, Friends, that's you and me. And it's every other person that would come to faith in Christ. The joy set before him was the reality of his own promise that eternally those who come to him by faith are going to have him forever and he's going to have us forever. The joy set before him was the prize on the other side of the sacrifice. And so he could move into something that costs that much, sacrifice that far, Because there was a joy in knowing he was serving those he loves. And friend, if you belong to him, that's you. Does that shock you? It should. And it should never stop. It shocks me. Hallelujah. Amen. There's also joy in obedience. There's joy in sacrifice. There's joy in obedience. Also counterintuitive. Let me read you this. Psalm 119, 47. I will delight in your commandments, which I love. I will delight in your commandments, which I love. Can we be honest and say that it's hard for us to say that with heartfelt enthusiasm sometimes? Isn't it? That we delight in the commandments of God and we love them? We, we delight in, in like happy, precious moments, Jesus, that's hugging us, that's easy. But when God has commandments that demand something of us, sometimes it's a little hard to say, Ooh, Lord, I delight in those. I love your commandments. Am I the only one that's going to be honest in your day? You guys going to just stare at me holy or what's up? Anybody else also sometimes have a hard time with delighting in the commandments of the Lord? Amen. Thank you. Why? Why is that true sometimes? It's probably a multitude of things, but at least one issue, a major issue, is because we believe lies about obedience. We believe lies about it. I I found this allegory. It's kind of a parable written by a man named Sheldon Vanauken. That ain't your last name, bro. I'm sorry. It's a weird last name. So, Um, And I, I thought, there's lots more I could say about this and try to kind of form it out more, but man, sometimes, sometimes Jesus used parables. Sometimes they're really helpful. So let me, let me just read this to you. We're talking about there being joy and obedience. Gypsy was a furry, wheat-colored collie. She found herself in possession of several hundred acres of hills and woods full of good things like rabbit trails and streams and intriguing burrows, and she delighted in it all. She was given a comfortable bed and good meals. Perhaps she rather took it all for granted. Of obligations, there were few, 
and they not heavy. She was, to be sure, supposed to worship her master and be right joyous with him. She knew she must not chase the chickens. While she must obey certain commands to follow, to come, to lie down, there were no unreasonable ones and no tricks. After all, to obey and to worship were natural to her dog nature. Then came a day when as Gypsy was prowling on the far hill past the spring house and pasture, two things happened at once. The master called her and a rabbit fled across the hill. Gypsy wheeled and raced towards the master as she always had done. Then she stopped. It entered her mind that she didn't have to obey. Perhaps the master didn't understand about the rabbit. Anyhow, these were her hills. The rabbit was hers too. Very likely it was all lies. The story of everything, including herself belonging to the master. How did she know that the food in her dish came from him? Probably there was some natural explanation. She was a free dog and that was the end of it. These thoughts went through her mind swiftly while she stood irresolute. Again came the master's command. The rabbit crossed the hilltop. Gypsy whirled and raced after the rabbit. She had made a choice. She was free to choose. Hours later, she came home. She saw the master waiting for her, and she did not rush gladly to him, leaping and frisking as she had always done. Something new came into her demeanor, guilt. She crept up to him like a snake on her belly. Undoubtedly, she was penitent at the moment, but she had a new knowledge, the knowledge of the possibility of sin. And it was a thrill in her heart and a salt taste in her mouth. Nevertheless, she was very obedient the next day and the day after. Eventually, though, there was another rabbit, and she did not even hesitate. Soon it was the mere possibility of a rabbit. And then she dropped the rabbit thing altogether and went her way. The master loved her still, but trusted her no longer. In time, she lived in a pen and went for walks with a rope around her neck. All her real freedom was gone, but the master gave her from time to time new chances to obey her of her own free will. Had she chosen to obey, she would once again have had perfect freedom to wander the hundreds of acres, but she did not return to obedience. She always chose, if she were out of reach, to run away. The master, knowing hunger would bring her back to her pen, let her run. He could have stopped her. The rifle that would have ended her rebellion with the crack of doom stood in a corner. But while she lived, she might still return to the obedience, might still choose the obedience that was freedom. One day during a journey by car, Gypsy was taken into the edge of a wood. Always Gypsy had limited her disobedience to her own hills, but now coming back to the car, she suddenly felt the old thrill. She turned and fled. The master called with a note of sharp urgency. Gypsy, her ears dulled to the meanings of the master, continued her rush into the dark forest. After hours of searching and calling, the master sadly abandoned the lost one and went home. Lost Gypsy, if she still lived, wandered the woods and roads and outcast. She became dirty and matted with burrs. No doubt stones were thrown at her and she was often hungry. But she had lost the way home. If she had puppies, they too and their children had lost the way home. For Gypsy's perilous and bent will to disobey must infect them. And the comforting hand of the master would be unknown to them except as a tale. This is the way Gypsy chose on the day of the rabbit and continued to choose until suddenly there was no more choosing. Why do we struggle sometimes to understand that there's joy in obedience? It's because we believe lies about it. We believe lies about God's purpose and part in it and our purpose and part in it. Amen. The last thing I want to show you here that I think is, is evident in this interaction with Joseph and the angel. It's kind of summary of all of it. It's, it's the joy of salvation. It's the joy of salvation. 
Maintaining and walking in the simple joy of our salvation is a crucial part of navigating our way through a world full of disappointment because it is broken by sin. Um, It's interesting here that we're told very plainly that his name will be Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, literally, it means Yahweh, the salvation of Yahweh. Hmm. This is a battle to maintain the simple joy of our salvation is a battle almost every believer will face at some time. Unless God in his great mercy grants you faith to believe him and to trust him and then very quickly takes you home, almost certainly at some point you will face this reality. King David did, and he wrote this, Psalm 51, 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. First of all, I want you to hear that if you have acknowledged at some time or are acknowledging now a struggle with maintaining a joy in the simplicity of the fact that you belong to Jesus, that you're saved by him, you're not alone. King David wrote it down, and anybody who's been doing this for any amount of time, I mean walking with Jesus and is honest, would say this is a tension that they have had to walk through. It's we are not bent towards thankfulness and contentment and gratitude as a consistent way of living. Our hearts are bent the other way, towards ingratitude and towards thinking somebody owes us more than what we've got, (laughs) which is foolish. But those natural sinful bends, they make it hard to maintain joy in the salvation of the Lord. But if you're stuck with that or stuck in that, what do you do? How do you come up out of that? Well, the first of all, I would say, and this may seem so elementary, it's not worth saying, but I don't want to take it for granted. We do the same thing David did. We pray, Lord, I'm noticing the joy of my salvation is not where it should be. Help me, restore it to me. Grant me grace. Stir in me again contentment and gratitude, thankfulness for all that you have done, all that you have promised, all you're doing right now and that you will do. Thank you. Or saving a wretch like me. Remember back to what you were saved from. <laughs> Rehearse the greatness of God and being able to snatch one like you. Amen. From a path of darkness and no hope. I would also suggest, and this means this sermon loops back on itself. I'm telling you now, if you, if you realize that the simple joy of your salvation is lacking, what do you do? I would pray. I, I would acknowledge it to God, and I would plead with him in faith to help you. But I would also, I would begin to, the Bible very clearly calls us to walk by faith and not by sight. And, and we just get stuck walking by sight. And so you might be, as far as your sight can tell, you know perhaps you have it some time or you are right now, you're struggling with maintaining this real vibrant joy in your salvation. So what, what can you do? You can do some things by faith. You can sacrifice by faith and see the joy that it brings. You can take the Lord Jesus at his word when he said it's better to give than to receive and you can move by faith into action and then begin to see what happens as, as it's like, well, I don't feel it yet. I don't feel the joy of my salvation, so I don't feel like sacrificing because I, I don't feel any of the joy. Well, sometimes, man, you've got to walk by faith first, and then, and, then, and then the feelings come. Sometimes the feelings follow the faithfulness. Sometimes the feelings follow the action. So who, who told you you have to feel like it to do it? That's what I want to know. 
Somebody lied to you, friend. And you're going to end up stuck and trapped if you're just always waiting to feel it on your terms, man. I'm not trying to discount feelings. God gave us feelings and emotions. Amen. God expresses that he has them. (laughs) Okay? It's a part of the way we reflect the image of God, but those are not meant to rule you. The truth of God is meant to rule you. And so sometimes you're going to have to walk by faith when you don't feel like it. And if the joy of your salvation has waned for whatever the reason is, that simple joy has begun to slip through your fingers, sometimes part of what can can reawaken that is to take God at his word and go and serve and sacrifice for the good of others in faith. And then that that truth that is better to give than receive, it, it, it comes around and proves itself to be right once again. What else can you do? You can obey by faith and see the joy that it brings. I don't feel like obeying. I sure don't feel like obeying God is going to change anything about the way I feel. Shall I repeat myself or do we get the principle? It doesn't matter what you feel about it. Sometimes it's obeying God by faith when you don't feel like it. That renews again the joy that comes only in obeying God. Because do, do you understand how stuck you are? If you believe, okay, I got to feel like doing it. I got to feel like, like that's, I want, I, like obedience. I got to feel like obedience is going gonna, is gonna to fix it or like, it, like I want to. But if, if joy comes in obedience, if joy comes in sacrifice, but I don't feel like it, so I'm going to sit here stuck until I feel like it. But how, how do I get there? I'm stuck. So sometimes we have to operate in the simple fact that God has said it and thus it's true and I'm going to obey by faith. I'm going to ask God for the faith to move forward in obedience to these things. And then joy, and joy comes when I obey God. That is true. Have we all bought that today? Can, can we at least say this? When I sacrifice, it's better. Gee, my master said it's better to give than receive. Is that true, Love City Church? Are you taking that for what it is? Every time I lay down what I want to sacrifice for the good of others and for the fame of my king, it is for my good. Yes? It's better than if I was selfish. Yes? Every single time I obey my God instead of doing whatever dumb thing I would do, it's for my good and I have joy as a result of it. Is that right? That's right. And so sometimes I'm going to have to do those things by faith because I'm not going to feel like it. But then the very joy I was looking for at the front end is going to come as a gift. On the backside. Amen. Sometimes we have to rehearse and remind ourselves once again what an unmatched miracle it is that God would save you and then could save you and has saved you for the purpose of eternal and unencumbered relationship with him. Sometimes I just need to sit and think about the fact, first of all, that he would. What? And then that he can... And we're not done because he has. What? And I'm struggling with joy. Because of whatever. I've let my eyes get pulled to and be focused on. Again, not to trivialize the deep reality of the pain that many of us are walking through for a multitude of reasons. But we we do have to stack that up against some of these eternal things. And realize that I can simultaneously feel sadness about the brokenness of the world around me and all of that and maintain a firm grasp upon the joy of the Lord. They are not mutually exclusive. Friends, my prayer today is that if you've never experienced the splendor 
and the sweetness of salvation that only Christ can provide that you will. And as a result, you'll experience the joy that comes no other way. And if you were once full of real joy because of Jesus, but it has seemed to fade somehow, I pray that you will be filled once again until it overflows to the point that you can't help but share it. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, I thank you. I thank you for the details that Matthew captured here. We don't see them elsewhere. That an angel visited Joseph in a dream. That Joseph, being a righteous man, was going to just put Mary away quietly, but that this angel brought a message that sent him on a different trajectory. I thank you for his bold, unflinching obedience to get up, to take Mary as his wife, to protect her, to stand against the accusers, surely mocking her, to raise the Lord Jesus as his son, to teach him the trade of a carpenter, to play his part in your plan of redemption. God, may we all do that. Help us to walk in that kind of bold obedience. Lord, help us also to rest in your truth as it pertains to the joy that you provide. There's lots of ways to get confused about that, God. I thank you for the direction you've given us in your word today around these things. Lord, please help us not be fools and and hear it only, but help us be doers of your word for your glory, Master, and for our good. We love you so much, but it's only because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.